Appendix 1. Human Destiny. After Death, What? Part 1. The following are the passages of the New Testament principally relied on to prove the doctrines of universalism. The exposition here offered is commended to the consideration of the reader. Acts 3 verse 21. Whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. The word here rendered restitution one occurs nowhere else in the New Testament, but the kindred verb is used in eight passages too, two of which throw light on this one. The prophetic scriptures abound in predictions of a coming period of mingled blessing and judgment upon earth, and the Old Testament closes with the statement that its advent will be heralded by the return of Elijah III. This was used by the scribes to disprove the claims of Jesus to Messiahship, and in Matt 27:10 the disciples referred the difficulty to their master. The Lord in reply expressly confirmed the prophecy, declaring that Elias truly shall come first and restore all things, for. So again in Mark 9 verse 12, Elias verily cometh first and restoreth all things. St. Peter's words, in Acts 3 verse 21, unmistakably refer to this the common hope of the people he was addressing, a hope confirmed by Christ himself. If, even then, Israel would but repent, God would send them the Messiah appointed for them, even Jesus 5, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, of which, times, God spake by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. He goes on to assert emphatically that every prophet, from Samuel onwards, foretold of those days, and he ends by connecting with these same prophecies the promise to Abraham that in his seed all the kindreds of the earth shall be blessed. It is as clear as light, therefore, that the times of restoration of all things are no other than the times of refreshing of the 19th verse, the great season of joy and rest on earth, which it was understood the coming of Messiah in his glory was to bring with it, 6. Moreover, all the prophets have foretold of these days, and their voice is almost, if not entirely, silent, about events beyond the last great judgment of the quick amid dead. We are forced to the conclusion, therefore, that the use which has been made of the apostles' words is a perversion of the scripture. It must not be overlooked that the times of restoration of all things will be marked by the destruction of the obdurate and disobedient. Point 7. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, does this teach universal blessing? The words can be read in two ways. Either death may be taken to mean no more than physical death, and life as implying only the resurrection, or else the words may be understood in their deeper spiritual significance. If we adopt the former reading, then the passage means that his death is the lot of every human being, so every human being shall be raised from the dead by Christ's power. But who disputes this? It is the common faith of Christendom, 8. But, it will be urged, the words mean more than this, life means salvation in the highest sense. Then death must be construed on the same principle, for the words are correlatives. How then shall we read the verse? As every human being dies, i.e. shall be finally lost, so every human being shall live, i.e. shall be finally saved. But these propositions are contradictory and absurd. We must either be content, therefore, to take the words as asserting merely the universality of death and resurrection, or else we must adopt a second possible rendering nine, and construe them thus, as in Adam all who belong to Adam die, so in Christ all who belong to Christ shall be made alive. That this is in fact the apostles meaning the immediate sequel proves. He adds, but each in his own order, Christ, 
the first fruits, afterwards they that are Christ's, i.e. who belong to Christ, at his coming. That there will be beyond that resurrection to life a resurrection to judgment, we know from other scriptures, but this is outside the scope of the apostle's argument, and he makes no mention of it here. If the 22nd verse be bracketed with the 21st, it will be read on the first principle above suggested, if with the 23rd, it will be pregnant with higher truth. But in neither case can it have the slightest bearing on the present controversy. In the passage under consideration, the climax is reached in the statement of the 28th verse that the great end of the mediatorial kingdom is that God may be all in all. These words are held to imply universal restoration. But this result is declared to be when he shall have put down all rule, and all authority, and power. It is not attained till he hath put all enemies under his feet, till all things shall be subdued unto him, and this is not the sort of language in which scripture speaks of winning back the lost to God. Moreover, the absolute and acknowledged supremacy of the Almighty is all that is involved in the words that God may be all in all. The gloss all things in all men betrays either dishonesty or levity in handling scripture. The supremacy is universal, and if it be brought about by reconciliation, the blessing must be shared by all the hosts of darkness. Philippians 2 verse 10 this last remark applies with equal force to the statement of the divine purpose that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things on earth, and things under the earth. Not merely angels and saints and men on earth shall own him Lord, but also the dwellers in the underworld. But till it has been proved that this acknowledgement shall be obtained from all by reconciliation, it must not be assumed that it will not be, in the case of some, by judgment. Revelation 5 verse 13, 21 verses 4 and 5, 22 colon 3. With this statement in Philippians, the vision of Revelation 5 verse 13 appears to be connected. But this perhaps has been assumed too easily. The language seems to be figurative, for it is not intelligent beings only, but all animated creation, that join in the anthem of praise. No argument can fairly be based on it. Point 10. The use made in this controversy of the description of the blessedness of the redeemed in the new creation must excite surprise in the mind of anyone who studies the context. For the redeemed there is to be no more curse or death or sorrow, but, in awful contrast with this, the fearful and unbelieving shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. Romans 5 It is idle to ignore the fact that theologians widely differ in their exegesis of the fifth chapter of Romans. But all that is essential here is to determine whether the meaning put upon the passage by the advocates of universalism be the true interpretation of it. The difficulty of the passage is centered in the statement of the 18th verse, that as through one trespass, the judgment came, unto all men to condemnation, even so through one act of righteousness, the free gift came, unto all men to justification of life, 11. Verses 13 to 17 are parenthetical, and in the Apostle's argument the words just quoted follow upon the statement of the twelfth verse, that, by reason of Adam's sin, death passed upon all men. Therefore, he concludes, as the result of that one trespass was unto all men to condemnation, even so the result of Christ's one act of righteousness twelve was unto all men to justification. But surely the second of these correlative clauses is governed by the first. Men have many trespasses, as the 16th verse declares, and the word chiroiota sigma mu alpha, charisma, is unto justification from them all. But here he is speaking only of the one trespass, and establishing that the death of Christ has cancelled the effects of Adam's sin.
No one will deny that this is a fair and natural rendering of the passage, and this being so, I might pass on, leaving it to those who insist upon giving it a wider meaning to prove the correctness of their view. But let us pursue the matter further. As the condemnation included all men, so also does the justification which tends to life. That the saved will be freed from the guilt of original sin is a mere truism. The Apostle's statement is that the benefit is for all. Christ has won for mankind immunity from judgment for Adam's sin. So far as regards that sin every human being is justified at 13. But we are told we must not thus limit it. What then is the alternative? That just as that one trespass brought condemnation upon every human being, even so the death of Christ brought in justification, not from Adam's sin only, but from all sin. There is no question here of the penitent believer's blessing, but of the condition of man as man in virtue of the death of Christ. All men, penitent and impenitent alike, are justified from all things. All sins are thus wiped out forever, and yet these same teachers tell us that for these very sins the sinner shall be punished in Ionian fire beyond the grave. Ephesians 1 verse 10 The epistle to the Ephesians announces the purpose of God that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, the things in the heavens and the things on the earth. The words all things, tau pinuto alpha, shall be further considered under the next passage cited. Suffice it here to admit that they are wide enough to include the universe, and if explanatory words of as wide signification be added, no other meaning can fairly be put on them. But is it clear that the words here added are not words of limitation? In the passage already noticed in Philippians 14, where the supremacy of Christ is in question, the Apostle includes, with heaven and earth, the underworld, and that the heavens include the abode of fallen angels and lost men is a startling assumption which cannot be conceded. Moreover, it is admitted by all that the lost will be sent to their punishment after the last great judgment. Therefore if they are to be included in the gathering together, the economy of the fullness of times must be explained on a principle unknown to theologians. Further, the rendering gather together in one gives to the word here used a color which scarcely belongs to it. It occurs once again this, in Romans 13 verse 9, where the apostle says the law is briefly comprehended in the one word which enjoins love. The word means to head up or sum up as XGR at the close of a speech. The universe shall yet be headed up in Christ. He shall regain the place from which sin has sought to dethrone him. But whether this shall be accomplished by the restoration of all, or by the subjection of all, we must turn to other scriptures to decide. Colossians 1 verse 20 The most important passage still remains. To the Colossians St. Paul writes thus, For in him, Christ, God was pleased that the whole fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile again all things to him, having made peace by means of the blood of his cross, through him, whether the things on the earth or the da things in the heavens. I have followed the translation given in Alfred's commentary. Here at last we have a statement which, it ought to be admitted, seems to teach universal restoration. To attempt a critical analysis of the somewhat conflicting views of commentators on the passage would involve too serious a digression. But in accordance with the scheme of my argument, the following suggestions are offered for the consideration of the thoughtful. First, then, the remark already made on the words all things applies here with increased force. It cannot be questioned that in the 16th verse these words have no limitation whatever, for in speaking of creation, the heavens and the earth include the universe in every part and to its utmost limits. But sin has produced an apostasy from the heavens and the earth, 
and as already noticed, the Apostle when asserting Christ's supremacy enumerates the heavens, the earth, and the underworld. Further, there is sometimes a good deal of theology in the use of the Greek article, and its presence here indicates that the prominent thought in the passage is not every part of the universe, but the universe regarded as a whole. May not the lapsed portion of it be ignored here, as it is ignored in the closing words of the first chapter of the Bible, where everything fifteen that God had made was declared to be very good, albeit the serpent and his angels had already marred the unity of creation? But it is the word reconcile upon which attention must be centered in considering this passage. It is used only by St. Paul, and the passages in which it occurs are so few and so important that it will be well to quote them here. Romans 5 verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled sixteen to God by the death of his Son, much more, being reconciled one hundred and ten, we shall be saved by his life. Romans 5 verse 11. Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Point 17. Romans 11 verse 15. If the casting away of them, Israel, be the reconciling one hundred and eleven of the world. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 11. Let her be reconciled 110 to her husband. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 18 to 20. All things are of God, who hath reconciled 110 us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation 111, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling 110 the world unto himself, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation 111 we pray in Christ's stead be ye reconciled to God. Ephesians 2 verse 16. That he might reconcile 18 both, Jew and Gentile, unto God in one body by the cross. Colossians 1 verses 20 and 21. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile 112 all things unto himself, by him, whether they be things on earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled 112 in the body of his flesh through death. This word translated reconcile means, first, to change one thing for another, and, secondly, as here, to change a person from enmity to friendship. The question at once suggests itself, on which side is the change? Is it in God's attitude towards the creature, or in the creature's attitude towards God? Does the creature receive God into his favor, or is it God who receives the creature? The mere statement of the question seems to prejudge the answer. In a case like this there is no safer clue to the meaning of any word in the New Testament than its use in the Septuagint. Dean Alford quotes the following as the places where it occurs. Je 31 Sadface 48, 39, a mistranslation. 2 Master of Accountancy 1 colon 5, God. Hear your prayers and be reconciled unto you. 7.33 Though the living Lord be angry with us, yet shall he be reconciled unto his servants. 8.29 They besought the merciful Lord to be reconciled unto his servants forever. As regards the noun, Kappa Alpha Tau Alpha Lambda Lambda Alpha Gamma, Archbishop Trench 19 says it only occurs twice in the Septuagint, and in one of these passages it means simply exchange. In the other passage, 2 Master of Accountancy 5.20 it is employed in the New Testament sense. There the writer says, speaking of the temple, as it was forsaken in the wrath of the Almighty, so again, on the reconciliation of time great Lord, it was set up with all glory. 
Dr. Trench goes on to say that the Christian reconciliation is, first, a reconciliation effected once for all for us by Christ upon his cross, though it is, secondly and subordinately, the daily deposition under the operation of the Holy Spirit of the enmity of the old man toward God. And the writer adds, all attempt to make this, the secondary meaning of the word, to be the primary, rests not on an unprejudiced exegesis, but on a foregone determination to get rid of the reality of God's anger against sin. These are weighty words of special moment here. In all these passages from the Septuagint reconciliation is from God to man, and if with the light they give we turn back to the scriptures above set forth, the same conclusion will be established. We were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. On conversion the sinner did not produce, he only received the reconciliation. Is it not clear as light that it is this accomplished reconciliation which has dethroned sin and ushered in the reign of grace? The next passage is still more unmistakable. The setting aside of Israel was the reconciliation of the world, 20 when Israel rejected Messiah, God set the nation aside and turned toward the world. Again, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It is not a present work, but a work past and finished. By that death we who were enemies were reconciled. The appeal of the gospel is now that men would receive the reconciliation. Be reconciled to God is not an entreaty to time sinner to forgive his God, but an appeal to him to come within the reconciliation God has wrought. Point 21. All this leads unmistakably to the conclusion that the reconciliation of all things is not a hope to be fulfilled in the coming eternity, but a fact accomplished in the death of Christ. It is impossible that the way of life ever can become more free than that death has made it, and if men refuse the proffered mercy, if they reject the reconciliation, what alternative can there be but wrath? John 1 verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The only question we have to consider here is whether the record of this utterance of the Baptist is to be taken as a doctrinal statement proving universal expiation. It is unnecessary, therefore, to discuss the views of rival commentators upon the text, especially as, apart from controversy, no one probably would question its reference to Isaiah 53 verses 6 and 7, which again contains an allusion to the scapegoat of Leviticus 16 verse 21, it is as though the Baptist had exclaimed, Behold him who is the fulfillment of the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. It was a testimony to the Messiahship of Jesus, and it is unwarrantable to read it as though it were designed to settle and advance the controversy between the Calvinist and the Universalist. The one, no doubt, is bound to reconcile the words with his narrow views of redemption, and the other must account for the fact of judgment to come, consistently with universal expiation. But they who refuse to take either side in that controversy will be content to mark that while the work of Christ has a relation to the world 22, it has not brought the world deliverance from judgment. The question here involved is not the duration of future punishment, but whether future punishment is possible at all. Point 23. 1 John 2 verse 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for, the sins of, the whole world. The apparent difficulty of this passage depends in part on carelessness in reading it, and in part upon ignoring the teaching of the type on which such statements in the New Testament are based. This word lambda alpha sigma mu occurs again in 1 John 4 verse 10, and nowhere else in the New Testament. Dean Alford refers to the following passages where it is used in the Septuagint viz. Numbers 5 verse 8, Psalm 129 verse 4, and Ezekiel 44 verse 27. It expresses not what Christ accomplished through his death on the cross, but what he is in virtue of that death.
The former is kappa alpha tau alpha lambda lambda alpha gamma, CP.81, anti, the latter is lambda alpha sigma mu. The kindred word lambda alpha sigma tau iota omicron nu also occurs twice, viz, Romans 3 verse 25, propitiation, and Hebrews 9 verse 5, mercy seat, and the verb is likewise used in two passages, Luke 18 verse 13, be merciful, and Hebrews 2 verse 17, to make reconciliation for. Grace is reigning. But if the grant of pardon were compulsory with God, or if it were impossible, grace would be in bondage. Because Christ is the propitiation for the whole world, God can have mercy upon whom he will, but to assert that his death renders judgment and punishment for sin unrighteous and impossible, is a wanton denial of scripture. And if, in fact, there be wrath to come, the duration of that wrath may be infinite as far as this passage is concerned. 1 Timothy 2 verses 4 and 6, 4-10 God will have all men to be saved. Christ gave himself a ransom for all. God is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. The exposition of previous passages renders it almost unnecessary to say anything about these. Judgment and hell are facts which all admit. Whatever these verses mean, therefore, they are consistent with the perdition of the ungodly. If Christ were not a ransom for all, there would be those on earth whom God could not save. Grace, therefore, would be in chains and not enthroned. This word ransom, nu to lambda upsilon tauromicron nu, occurs here only. The kindred word lambda tauromicron nu is used in Matt 2028 20, and Mark 10 verse 45. The fourth verse, as it reads in the English, may mean either that God intends to save all men, or else that he is willing that all should be saved. There is no such ambiguity in the Greek, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God has revealed himself as the Savior of all men? But if he be in the same sense the Savior of all, what possible meaning can there be in the words of limitation, especially of those that believe? As it has been well put, as far as salvation stands in him, he is the Savior of all men, but it is only in those who believe that the salvation becomes actual. Matthew 5 verse 26 Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. As Dean Alfred remarks, these words, which in the earthly example imply future liberation, because an earthly debt can be paid in most cases, so in the spiritual counterpart amount to a negation of it, because the debt can never be discharged. Indeed, the use of this text in support of universalism only betokens the weakness of the cause, for imprisonment for debt is the basis of the parable, and this necessarily implies discharge when the debt is paid. The only possible way in which the idea of discharge on payment could be negatived would be by fixing the debt at a sum entirely beyond the power of any man to pay. And this is precisely what the Lord has done in the kindred passage, Matt 18.24. There, again, the debtor was committed till he should pay all that was due, but the sum due was so enormous that payment was impossible. If the 10,000 talents were of gold, the amount was fabulous. But even if of silver, the mention of such an amount would have impressed, and was clearly intended to impress, the hearers with the idea of hopeless ruin. It was the sum at which Haman reckoned the revenue derivable from the destruction of the entire Jewish people, Esther 3 verse 9. John 3 17, 12 32. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This may express either the desire that all may be saved, or the intention that all shall be saved. Does the context leave it doubtful which is meant? 
The preceding verse expressly limits the actual blessing to the believer, and the verse which follows declares in the plainest terms not merely that the rejecter of Christ shall be condemned, which is the antithesis of being saved, but that he is condemned already. And the chapter closes with the words, He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. The use made of the passage, therefore, to prove universalism can only avail to suggest the sad inquiry whether any honesty is to be looked for in religious controversy. 24. The last passage which claims attention is the record of words spoken by the blessed Lord shortly before his crucifixion, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all unto me. This he said, the universalist declares, signifying that all men are ultimately to be saved. This he said, the inspired evangelist adds, signifying what death he should die. The statement, in fact, has no bearing on the controversy. In the days of his humiliation the Lord declared that no one could come to him unless drawn by the Father who had sent him, in view of his cross he announced the time was coming when he would draw all to himself. But the question before us now is the future of those who resist the influence, and on this the testimony of Scripture is given in no doubtful terms. Conclusion The list of texts given by the author first quoted in these pages is swelled by several from the Old Testament. Most of these fall within the general remarks made at pages 37 to 37 supra, the exceptions being passages which the reader will study in vain to discover how they bear upon the question at all point 25 indeed, this writer's appeal to scripture is an enigma, considering that he distinctly repudiates belief in universalism. There are many other passages, of course, freely used by universalists, which have not been noticed here. Romans 11 verse 26 is an example. All Israel shall be saved. This means either that every Israelite, from patriarchal times to the end of the world, will ultimately be saved or else that in days to come Israel as a nation shall be saved. Can anyone doubt which is the true interpretation? In the context it is expressly stated that in the divine intention Israel does not embrace every Israelite, 9,6, and the same apostle's testimony to the Jews included a warning that perdition was the doom of despisers, Acts 13 verse 41. As a typical instance of passages which are not quoted by writers of this school may be cited Luke 13 verses 23-8. Said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When will that be? He goes on to explain that the day is coming when the door which now stands open shall be closed, and then the sinner will knock at it in vain. At the very epoch when, these teachers tell us, the door will be flung open for all, the Lord himself declares it will be closed even against those who seek an entrance. 